Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 145. On today's show, we're joined by Kimberly Dowdell, a principal at HOK in Chicago and the current president of the National Organization of Minority Architects. Our conversation covers Kimberly's impressive path to success in architecture and the leadership role she's taking in NOMA. We'll also discuss the upcoming NOMA conference taking place in Brooklyn in a few weeks from October 14th to 20th. So, Kimberly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's so nice to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we understand that you're currently principal at HOK's Chicago office, in addition to being the current president of the National Organization of Minority Architects. Uh, before we get started in talking about all that, can you give us a little background and, and uh, tell us about your path to getting to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. It has not been a super straightforward path lots of different turns and curves along the way, but it's all been a good adventure. So my story starts in Detroit, Michigan, which is where I'm from. As a middle school student, I remember two distinct moments. One, doing an art project in uh, middle school where our teacher gave us a shoebox and and challenged us to make an apartment. So essentially shape space. And I I really embraced that project and I began to understand the power of design to say, well, you know, this should go here and that should go there and we can use this carpet. And and so again, that was the entry point for me. And then around that same time, you know, I really got to experience, you know, through a a new perspective, uh, downtown Detroit, um, not just as a place that Again, and this is the early 90s, but not as just a place that is, you know has like you know these old boarded up buildings that were actually really beautiful buildings that are former ghosts of themselves, but buildings that had potential. And and so I started to ask about the the power of design and how that could actually help to reactivate those buildings. So that's kind of how my love for architecture began. You know, back as a, a young person who wanted to to see you know my my city improve, specifically working at architecture as, as a way to to do that. And so I ended up going to, to, I got a scholarship to go to boarding school at Cranbrook, which is pretty well known in the architectural community. Um, so I lived on campus from ninth through 12th grade, which is a really great atmosphere to learn about. I uh, wanted to go to high school, but also to learn about design and, and art and architecture. And then I ended up going to architecture school at Cornell and Ithaca. And so that's you know, really my first experience outside of Detroit or the Detroit area. You know, it really just opened my eyes up into you know, just all the different places you know, that, that could be explored beyond Detroit. And, and I really began to fall in love with cities and you know, while while I was a college student visiting, you know, Washington, D.C. and New York City and studying abroad in Rome, that really, you know, opened up a whole other world for me. And so when I graduated from undergrad, you know, I had the opportunity to either go back to Detroit or explore other places. And I decided to kind of keep my as I like to call it, my 14-year East Coast tour going. So from Ithaca, I went to Washington, D.C. I worked for Ayers St. Gross Architects, which was, was a great experience. But I kept finding myself visiting New York a lot, and ASG didn't have a New York office. And I ended up going to work with HOK in New York 2008. And actually, that uh, actually both of those connections were made through my, my NOMA network. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about NOMA today. But while I was at HOK, I ended up transitioning from um, a more traditional architectural path to marketing business development path just because of the, the mentorship that, that I ended up getting in the New York office of HOK. And I'm really glad that I got that experience because I just think that, you know, design is super important, but I think that being able to tell the story about, you know, about the, not only the, the, the design itself, but the designers and, and kind of how projects come about and how they evolve to serve the clients is so important. So the experience that I've had in marketing and business development has been really interesting and, and somewhat unique 
in architecture. And then I actually transitioned from HOK to real estate project management. So I was an owner's rep in New York working for a company called Levian and Company. And I did that for a number of years. And I really enjoyed that as well. But then I had an opportunity to go to graduate school. I got a fellowship through the Harvard Kennedy School of Government uh, at the Center for Public Leadership. Um, I was in the inaugural class of Sheila C. Johnson Leadership Fellows. And through that, I earned my Master of Public Administration. And oftentimes people ask me, why would you study public administration if you're an architect? At that point, I was licensed. And, you know, when I was thinking about graduate school, I was like, well, if I'm already licensed, then I think I want to, you know, use graduate school as an opportunity to to expand my horizon. And, And I think that buildings are very much a part of the public realm. And so I thought that Studying public administration would allow me to kind of better understand how policies are designed, which have a, a pretty major impact on how development happens and how cities evolve. You mentioned that people said, well, you're an architect. Why would you go into public policy? I'm wondering if in the public policy class, other people were saying to you, well, like you're an architect. We all studied this other thing. I, I, are, was there a flip side to that where they were all wishing they could have you know, studied what you had or, or wanted to hear your take on it? Yeah. Um, so I ended up doing a, a mid-career program. So it was a one-year program, one-year master's. And I had a little over 200 classmates and we were all from, you know, all around the world. And we studied an undergrad and, and had built our early careers and, and lots of different things. I was the only architect okay. in my class. Actually, there's one other person who studied architecture, but, you know, pivoted pretty soon after school, but lots of lawyers and doctors and policymakers yeah. and, you know, all kinds of people. And so what was really interesting about that is, you know, to your point, people are like, oh, wow, architecture, that's so cool. Because, I mean, most people, unfortunately, don't, like I was like the only architect that a lot of people knew at that point. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so it was, it was just a really great opportunity to just, you know, kind of cross pollinate ideas and, you know, talk about the intersection of, of health and design or policymaking as it relates to how development is done and how that touches so many different sectors. So it was, uh, it was actually pretty cool. I, I highly yeah. recommend it. <laughs> and then so, so to kind of round out the story, I swear it's, it's uh, coming to to a close soon. I graduated in 2015. Um, and I finally, after 14 years, as I mentioned before, it came home to Detroit to work in city government. So I worked for the city of Detroit in the, the housing and revitalization department for about a year. I was an executive manager of public-private partnerships, uh, which basically meant that I, I uh, helped real estate developers navigate the city systems, you know, for projects that the city, you know, felt were a higher priority. And so um, I really got to learn the lay of the land and, and meet lots of developers. And you know, during that process, I met with a, a company named Century Partners. I ended up joining them as a partner again a year after I'd come back to the city. And what I, I really liked about that experience was that, you know, I really got to understand sort of the nuts and bolts of development. But one of the things that, you know, I, I think I, I sort of was challenged with was, you know, the fact that I was working on sort of smaller scale projects, you know, they're single family homes or very small multifamily. And while it's, it's super critical to, to work on neighborhood revitalization, I think that's just important, particularly in, in the Detroit context. And I felt like I really missed working at the larger scale that you know I was working at in New York and D.C. And, and so throughout the three years I was in Detroit, I, I maintained the relationships that I had um, at HOK. And it, it came up that you know they were looking for for someone to help, you know, build out their their Midwest practice. In fact, the initial conversation was about an um, HOK Detroit presence, and then we ended up sort of deciding to to have me start in the Chicago office and then work on building out our our Midwest portfolio from here. And so I like to call it 
you know, the mighty Midwest that I'm working on cultivating, you know, lots of really exciting projects. So I've been doing uh, that for about four months now. I'm really excited to be back at HOK and learning the lay of the land here in Chicago, which has been fantastic. So Kimberly, I, I wanted to step back a little bit on your um, narrative a little, uh, just a bit, because I, I watched your uh, lecture today. Um, oh, you at, did? Uh, the Harvard. Yeah, cool. I did. I did. Thanks. It's really good. And um, there was a lot of great questions and a lot of my a lot of my thoughts are coming out of those questions or extending those questions a little bit in this format. But the one thing I want, if you could, I mean, you said it was non-traditional. Your path wasn't very where you are and how you got there is not traditional. But even your even your growing up as a child is is not something that, uh, like you pointed out, 0.36 percent of the architects in the profession are African-American women. Yes, okay. that's correct. Right. So 90, I'm number uh, 295. I'm number 295. 295, right. Every black woman knows her number. Uh, you know, everyone, every black woman who's licensed to practice architecture knows like where they are in that, in that, uh, that list. I would say to some degree, 90% of the professionals in, in the AIA don't have the same story that you have to tell about even just growing up and the struggles and, and the challenges that you had growing up. And I, I thought, you know, where you are now and where you were a really big, uh, you know, big different ends of di- uh, quite a different spectrum. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, there's a lot of young people, maybe they don't listen to this podcast, but uh, the one thing that I struggle with as an architect, I have a hard time advocating for anyone joining this profession, let alone uh, a young African-American student who's interested, because, partly because of the burdens that are placed on students as they go to college and carry this debt, and then the expectations and when they come out into the profession. So could you talk a little bit about maybe um, growing up? Yeah, sure. I mean, I grew up very humble beginnings in Detroit. And um, as I mentioned in the lecture that I gave at Harvard uh, earlier this spring, I I grew up in a household where, unfortunately, there were some mental health issues with my primary caregiver, my mother. But, you know, luckily that was, I think, offset by the time that I was able to spend with my grandmother and my older brother and aunts and uncles and, and other family members. So I truly was that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, child. And so I credit, you know, everyone for helping me get through that. But, you know, to your larger point about how, you know, architecture, it can be a difficult profession to choose, you know, once you look at everything in terms of the one, the, the the cost of architecture school, the length of architecture school, the crushing student debt that is apparent for anyone studying almost anything, but particularly architecture, because it's, you know, as you know, it's either a five, six or seven year, at least venture in school. And then of course, you know, you have to have the supplies, which are, you know, often more expensive than, than other majors. And then, you know, having the right technology, so having the right computers and, you know, the right software, I think is, is really important as well. And so, that coupled with, you know, the relatively low starting salaries, it, it, it's, a, it's a tough sell, particularly if you don't come from a family with a lot of resources. And so it's funny, my, my older brother, he sort of discouraged me from studying architecture when I was in high school because he knew, based on a, a friend that he had uh, that wanted to go into architecture and then decided to, to change course, you know, based on the salary expectations. And so he said, you know, don't be an architect, you're not going to make any money. And me being the sort of wayward child that I was, I was like, I'm going to study architecture anyway. So I did, and I'm glad it worked out. But I think it does take a lot of 
of passion to, to really get through. Because it's, again, it's not even just the economic burden that it can place on, you know, an individual or a family. I mean, it's also, you have to be pretty mentally tough. You have to have, you know, a certain level of, of resilience. And so that's, you know, that's something you need no matter if you come from a very wealthy family or, you know, middle income family or a low income family, you know, having to, to go through the, you know, the critique and, and kind of building yourself back up after your professor says that your project is so good or, you know, just all the things that kind of go, go into becoming an architect. But I think that, you know, we tend to, to lose a lot of really good people, one, not even having exposure to architecture in the first place. So, you know, I mentioned my story about the middle school art class. Well, unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of schools have, have cut their art programs. And so I think that's a problem. And in fact, I'm on a board here in Chicago called Ingenuity that looks at bringing arts programs to every single Chicago public school. And I think, you know, that's a, a model that really the nation can look at to, again, provide that that early exposure. But, you know, let's say you are exposed to architecture as a potential path, then you have to figure out which kind of architecture program you want to study. And then you start to look at the price tag. And then you start to look, unfortunately, you start to look at what the starting salaries are. And if you don't absolutely love the prospect of becoming an architect, they're probably going to make a different decision. But let's say you, you go through all that, you go into architecture school, you know, you could run into, you know, a studio that's particularly challenging, or you might find that, you know, you don't have a support network, you know, particularly if you're a minority in a, in a majority school, and there are no professors that look like you, and there are very few students who look like you, you know, that can, that can play a role in people's decision to, to choose something else. And then in addition to that, if you don't get the right internships, and I mean, there's so many things that have to line up really well. So that's, those are the challenges. So, yeah, and, and Madam President, <laughs> don't extend yourself too much. I mean, <laughs> I see I see all the I see all the acronyms behind your name, all the letters behind your name, and you're doing a lot. Um, but I applaud you for it. Thank you. Two things. So when I was in school, I was a, a I came from a family who who was always on the edge of homelessness, um, either okay. because of uh, se- family separation or whatever. My mom was always one car issue away from being really probably it was a problem it was paycheck to paycheck and trying to raise four yeah. kids and then having three of the kids out of the house and so when i would decide to go to architecture school i said i could either sack myself into debt or try to do this being a commuter and i just said you know there's no there was absolutely no way i could mentally dedicate myself to the process and try to live at home and i had to actually turn off family problems. I had to turn off the the external realities that a family to kind of subsume myself into the, the education itself. So I, I'd like you to just step back and talk about what that's like to go to a school where you may not see anyone who looks like you in either as in the education side or in students. I mean, because I think most students kind of poo-poo that as a, just a non-issue, but that to me sounds like a fundamentally challenging problem. Is it not? Yeah, no, it, it is. And I mean, I have to say that I was pretty fortunate in that even though I did go to a majority school, you know, Cornell, we, you know, we have about 60 students in the in the first year class and it, you know, generally dwindles down a little bit. But I think my class is unique in the sense that uh, we had some very ambitious underclassmen who ended up joining our class. We ended up around 60 people at the end, which is somewhat unique. But you know, there were an uncanny number of African-American students in my class. We had eight out of 60, which was like, whoa, this is, we're like bursting the the, um, the statistics here. Was Cook one of you? No, he was a few years ahead of me. We um, had him so on the podcast a 
a little while ago. So <laughs> he's, oh, he, he's, he's fantastic. Friend. I look forward to yeah. I look forward to seeing him and and, and others from from Cornell at the the NOMA conference in Brooklyn next month, or actually in a few weeks. But my class, so we started with eight and we ended up with six African-Americans graduating, you know, several um, Hispanic students and Asian students. And, you know, I think we had a fairly diverse mix. But one thing that was very, very noticeable at Cornell, and it's still the case, lovely school. I love it. I'm, you know, I serve on, on boards and councils there and all that stuff. But one area where we can stand to improve is just faculty and staff diversity. You know, we, we've had, uh, at least while I was there, I think we had you know, two to three maximum African-American faculty members. And I think just one of them was tenured. And um, that person, Henry Richardson, he's been there for, uh, I think, like 40 plus years or something, like a very, very long time. Like everyone has had Henry Richardson. And, you know, at a certain point, he's going to retire. And I'm like, well, will there be anyone there? And so, and that does matter. I mean, I think, you know, not having a studio professor or, you know, many other professors even teaching electives that, you know, kind of reflect the sort of cultural background that you come from. Um, I think that that matters. And, you know, we, we were able to kind of get through the program and, and I think it worked out pretty well. Uh, and I credit that largely to, um, we also had uh, at that point, it was called the Office of Minority Educational Affairs. And we had this phenomenal sort of administrator named Leon Lawrence, unfortunately has passed away, but um, Leon sort of served as our kind of like, almost like guardian angel, if you will. And so anytime you had an issue, Leon would, would sort of help you resolve it. And I mentioned not having a ton of resources for school. And so when I was struggling with structures, as many people do, you know, I went to Leon, I, I talked to him about it, and he was able to find me a tutor, which I wouldn't have been able to afford on my own. And then also he, uh, you know, just supported lots of students with lots of different, you know, he was able to kind of look at the resources that Cornell had and match those with the students to express those concerns, particularly those coming from the minority community. I think that's really important. And so, you know, without those kinds of, of people, you know, in young people's lives, I think it's, it's really difficult to, you know, to navigate. And so and that's one of the reasons why you know, I think I was able to, to make it through that program and also having such a high number of classmates who, you know, sort of came from the communities that, you know, that I can relate to, but I also, you know, enjoyed my, my other classmates too. And so that diversity, I think is really important, but yeah. And I think that if it had just been me, it, it might've been, you know, a different, different situation. In fact, many other Cornell classes around that time, like before my class, I think there were like one or two African-American students and then the class after was, you know, just like two or three. So, you know, I think that does matter, but I think also the faculty and, and staff presence is important, but you know, just in general, having a diverse mix of people representing, you know, all cultures is just really important because we all live in a built environment. And so I think that, you know, having the future authors of the built environment reflect the communities that they're serving is just kind of makes sense to me. So I appreciate programs that, that really do foster that kind of diversity and, and a sense of belonging. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, that, that help people to stay either in a school or in a firm, or, or, or in an organization like NOMA. I think that one of our sort of signature qualities is that, you know, NOMA has a, does a really good job of fostering a, a sense of belonging. So you come to the NOMA conference, which I hope everyone will, October 16th to the 20th in Brooklyn, New York this year. And, you know, there, there are hundreds of people there who are all, you know, there to support one another and kind of getting through this, you know, either licensure process or navigating the profession. Um, you know, that's kind of the, the point of it all to kind of to support one another. OK, so I, I really want to pursue more talking about um, NOMA and in particular this notion. And you phrased it so beautifully that uh, and I'm, I will botch it, but that the people who are forming the built environment need to be of all kinds of of backgrounds and histories and, and places. But um, 
I want to skip back again, sorry, back to school because I got my That's master's okay. in sure. architecture from Cranbrook. So I actually went to Cranbrook as a master's oh, student. Nice. And you are, I think, the first person I've ever spoken to who went to the girls' school there. So can you just indulge yeah. me a little in how the girls' school, the design especially, but also I, I imagine in that program you were, um, I, I'm wondering how you got in, got to the program. Like, how did you find that school? Yeah. Can you tell me a little more about your Cranbrook story? Yeah. So it's really interesting. In middle school, I ended up going, so I started out my educational career um, in Detroit public schools and you know, like kindergarten through fifth grade. And then in fifth grade, my mom noticed that I was getting like a little bored in school. So she ended up finding a more rigorous school for me to to attend. And so it was a very small, specialized school, um, and, you know, just outside of Detroit and, and Redford, Michigan. So that school, which is where I had the, the art program, that school had a high school night. And so, um, so all the, the local private high schools came to the school to, to recruit. And I remember seeing the, uh, the Cranbrook brochure, which was beautiful. And yeah. I remember seeing like a kid sitting on a bed talking to other kids. And I was like, wait, you can live there? <laughs> like, given it, it's, like, it's so, it's so silly, but I was just like, I want to live there because again, I was, you know, I'd mentioned some of the challenges that I experienced growing up and I was like, well, this school is beautiful architecture is obviously everywhere and I can live there. Like, let's make this happen. And so, um, you know, I was very fortunate in that um, my older brother and, and sister-in-law, you know, helped facilitate that. Like they set up the meeting with the admissions counselors and the financial aid people and, um, you know, I did the interview and we just kind of like worked it out. And so that's how Cranbrook happened. Uh, and it was great. And I, I mean, I was a boarding student there for four years. Yeah, I, I was very involved in Lots of things, you know, the, the, there's the academic piece, which is obviously required, but then also I participated in sports and arts, and uh, it was just a beautiful place to live. Definitely enjoyed living on the, the Kingswood campus, which is the girls' campus, but um, it's, it's a co-ed school. It started out as a boys' school and a girls' school separately, and then in the 80s, they, they merged to, to have a, a co-ed environment, but really loved it. And actually, I did my senior May project uh, at the architecture school, um, the graduate program there. So I worked with Peter Lynch, who was there at the time. And oh, so for okay. the month of yeah. May, yeah, for the month of May, seniors can, you know, do an internship anywhere that they choose. And so I ended up staying on campus, but going to the to the graduate school to, oh, um, awesome. you know, help him with some, you know, with some architectural projects for them. Uh-huh. College. Oh, that that's was, I mean, it was an amazing experience. Definitely. Yeah. Love that. Well, I mean, the thing that I, I always really struck me about the boys school and the girls school there and how that has changed now is that, you know, initially it was this this notion that the boys school was all connected by courtyards and outdoors because boys are like rambunctious and out in the world. And the girls school was all very sort of cloistered and self, you know, enclosed so that the girls were sort of protected from the outside world. And there's something about just putting that that intentionality so forward within the architecture that like you can't escape it. I mean, I think when you're at Cranbrook, you cannot escape the power of design to really affect how you feel, how you see things, everything about it. It's just overwhelming almost. Yeah, yeah actually there's a there's a quote on the dining hall on the on the Cranbrook campus or the, the boys' side of the campus, if you will, that said a life without beauty is only half lived. You know, it's like etched on the side of the building. And so right. you know it, it's very, very clear, you know, the the messaging of, of that campus that design is very important. Yeah. Oh, I'm just, I, yeah, I'm excited to, to speak with you and know that that was part of your background as well, because it is such an amazing place. Yeah. But so, yeah, let's talk a little more about, about Noma and the, the great, um, heroes of our profession are for the most part, all 
old white men. So let's talk more about how <laughs> NOMA can sort of bring about more people, a more diverse register of architects, basically. Yeah, let's talk about it. I mean, I think that, you know, there's there's talent in every, you know, racial background and, and both genders and, you know, all, all corners of, of, the, of the world. And um, I think that the profession of architecture will be a better profession, you know, once we really embrace diversity. In fact, there's a, a book that I often recommend that people check out called The Difference by Scott Page. And it talks about how um, organizations, um, boards, companies, schools are stronger um, because of diversity. And I, you know, I know that diversity, equity, inclusion, that's become a more recent buzzword, but you know, quite frankly, it's, I think we ha- we can't ignore it because by 2042, I think it is the majority of the the U.S. population will be people of color. And you know, when we think about that, that means that you know there will be a, a lot of people, you know, in our cities in particular, which are are growing pretty quickly and becoming more dense. Well, specific statistic on that is right now we have about 300 million people living in U.S. cities. By 2050, we'll have 400 million people living in cities. So if you think about cities becoming more dense and more diverse, I think we we have to think about, you know, how the profession of architecture can help shape more productive and, and harmonious spaces and places. Because otherwise, I think that, you know, if, if we continue down the path and we don't have a, you know, a particularly diverse profession, you know, there are going to be a lot of communities that feel you know, left out. And to give a very specific example, in Detroit, which is predominantly African-American city, you know, there aren't many firms that are led by persons of color. And so, you know, having been in that context, you know, for a number of years pretty recently, you know, people would ask, oh, you know, I, I would like to find a minority architect because, you know, the community that I'm building in is mostly African-Americans, but, you know, I'm, I'm having a difficult time finding one. So, I, you know, I would always connect people with, you know, a handful of Black architects who, you know, who are leading firms in Detroit. Um, but sometimes people would be, you know, at or over capacity and so they wouldn't have time to take on certain projects. But, you know, having presented certain teams to Detroit City Council, they'll ask the question, like, could you find someone who is local? Like, could you find someone who actually reflects this community? So it can become a, a political issue. Um, and so, I mean, those are just a couple of reasons why diversity is important. But, there are lots of reasons why, you know, it's, it's just, it's a smart thing to do because you have a wider spectrum of perspectives with which to, to design more sensitive projects. And how long have you been active with NOMA? And, you know, my, it's, I don't know if it's just my awareness or if it's hopefully the way that the world is going, but it does seem like NOMA is becoming a stronger and louder voice, which I love. How long have you been active and what are sort of the main things you're, you're pushing for right now? I know you planned the, the annual convention, but are there special initiatives you guys are, are working on right now? And I also just want to point yeah, out, because I'm sure you will, but anyone can join NOMA. I was a member a couple of years ago. I think it lapsed, <laughs> but anyone can join NOMA. Oh, <laughs> so well, you can come back. Any, yes, any, I will. Any I will. Moment. We'd love to have you back. <laughs> um, so, so my introduction to NOMA was back in 2004 as a student. I was a student at Cornell. And we entered the student design competition. And actually, the, that was the, so my first conference was actually in New York. So it's come full circle. 15 years later, I'm now the president of the organization. But 15 years ago, I was a third-year architecture student you know, on a team. And we, I think we ended up winning third place that year you know, in, in the student design competition. And I think a lot of, like most of our students actually join NOMA so that they can enter the student design competition because there are not many nationwide competitions where you can compete with other schools. So I think that draws in a lot of students. In fact, last year in Chicago, we had 
40 different schools competing. Back in my day, when we were uh, in school, it was like maybe 15 to 20 schools. And so the fact that that's doubled, I mean, it's, it's really exciting to see so many schools from all over the country um, with a really, really diverse set of kids, which is which is exciting. So that was my um, my intro to NOMA. And then I think NOMA really started to have a, an impact on my career. My very first internship, I worked for McKissick & McKissick in Washington, D.C., and I shared a cubicle with uh, Kathy Dixon. Kathy Dixon, you know, was a mentor of mine from the very beginning, just an instant friend. And um, she went on to become uh, a NOMA president, but at the time she was on the NOMA board and um, was just so, so caring and so just concerned about making sure that, that I was, you know, asking the right questions and getting good answers and, um, you know, just getting acclimated in the profession because it was my very first internship. And um, I ended up coming back to D.C. the following summer, but I didn't, I didn't actually have any, like, specific housing lined up. And even back then in 2005, uh, D.C. was a, a fairly expensive place for, you know, a college student who you know, didn't, you know, have a lot of resources. And so Kathy actually, you know, offered one of her guest rooms in her house in suburban Maryland you know, for like the cost of uh, like a utility bill or something to, you know, just like to stay at her place. And I, you know, I got like my little Metro card and commuted to work. And in fact, the, the second internship that I got was because Kathy connected me with Steve Lewis, who also is, you know, one of my great friends and, and mentors to this day. And so when I ended up moving to New York, Steve, he actually let me borrow his parents on Long Island, and I stayed with them for about a month before I found my apartment in Harlem. And so NOMA does a really good job of making sure that, you know, that young members are, are taken care of. And not to say that everyone gets housing necessarily, but I think we do a really good job of mentoring and, and just making sure that people are connected with the either job or, or other resources that they need to be successful. So I'm very grateful to both Kathy and Steve for, you know, for those things. But also, I mean, my, my first three jobs came directly through the, the NOMA network. In fact, Steve was uh, high school roommates with uh, Adam Gross. And so that's how the Air St. Gross connection happened. And I ended up working there. And then I was recruited to join HOK at the Orlando NOMA conference in 2007. And so that's how that happened. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, strong influence that NOMA members have had in helping me to navigate my career. And so that's part of the reason why I've been very passionate about, you know, giving back as much as I can. So my initial leadership role within NOMA started uh, actually right after college. So they invited me to join the national board uh, in 2006. And so I was on that board from 2006 to 2010. I was the uh, Northeast Regional University liaison, which meant that you know, I basically helped the students or the schools from the from the Northeast, you know, with participating in student design competition and any other issues that would kind of be the, um, the, the liaison to the organization. And I ended up coming off the board mainly because I wanted to focus on licensure um, and because otherwise it was just like working full time and then also being on the normal board and studying was like too much. So I had to out uh, after four years and then I focused on licensure that happened and then they gave me a few more years to kind of like catch my breath and then they're like all right could you come back and I was like I'm not <laughs> sure and they're like would you would you consider being president and I was like well okay that's kind of how that happened but I mean it's, it's been an honor to serve it's a ton of work but yeah. you know I feel like yeah. this is a really unique time in the in the profession and I wanted to be a part of that and I wanted to get back in a big way. And um, and that's part of why I've created a pretty ambitious platform for myself. So, so it's been interesting to see like, 
you know, what, you know, now that I live in Chicago, I've really embraced that, that Daniel Burnham quote, make no small plans. So that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing with Noma. And so my platform is called All In For Noma, uh, signaling that all people are more than welcome to, to join Noma as a member and to participate in our programs and, you know, just be a part of the, the movement that I think we, you know, we're building here to, to really, you know, increase diversity, equity, and inclusion in the profession. All in for Noma is uh, it's also an, it's an acronym for Access Leadership and Legacy. Access meaning you know making sure that everyone from the as I call it K through licensure pipeline is you know given exposure to the profession and the resources they need to be successful. You know currently we have Noma Project Pipeline, which is a, a program for middle school and high school students. You know to, to do a summer camp typically you know two to three days in some cases a week it just depends on the capacity you know of the end of individual chapters that are putting that program on but here in Chicago this past summer you know we had over a hundred kids which was which is really exciting but you know some some of our smaller chapters have you know maybe like a handful of kids and a few mentors and you know they spend a, a few days kind of you know, taking architectural tours and, you know, doing a small project. So, so again, it, it varies from chapter to chapter. We want to make sure that all chapters, you know, have that, have that touch point with, um, with young people. And then of course we have our, our NOMAS chapters or our NOMAS student chapters. I think we have close to 50 chapters now, which is exciting. And most of them, again, are participating in the student design competition, but, you know, they have you know, their own programming. They do, you know, I, I kind of follow some of them on Instagram. And so they're doing all kinds of really, really cool things on, on campus, which is exciting. And then there's a new program that we're rolling out summer 2020 called Noma Foundation Fellowship. And this program is something that I created in an effort to formalize some of what I described I benefited. So for example, you know, when a student and, you know, we're still working out the details of the program, but it'll be, there'll be an application process and a certain number of students will be able to become a, a Noma Foundation Fellow, which means that they will, once they graduate, they'll be a part of a program that prepares them for what I'm calling professional readiness. So um, it's almost like a professional practice immersion for like a week or two. And then we directly connect them to a 12-week internship. And, you know, there are many, many firms that are, are interested in building a diverse pipeline of new talent. And, you know, they, they come to NOMA all the time saying, hey, we need to, you know, we need to find diverse candidates. Do you have them? And, and we do, but we want to make sure that they're, you know, prepared to enter the workforce. And so, so we're excited about this program that's going to be launched in uh, five cities, uh, again, we're still finalizing, but five cities next summer and basically promoting, you know, students going into, or I should say new graduates going into these programs, you know, getting kind of a, a base level understanding of what's expected of them in the workplace and then giving them that um, that 12-week internship, which will evolve more than likely into, you know, full-time employment, or at least that's the goal. Another aspect of the program, and we'll have to do a lot of fundraising around this, so hopefully this, this uh, podcast will help, but we want to actually get the students uh, or the new graduates some transportation funding to get from, you know, wherever they graduated from to that city and, you know, to some extent help subsidize housing costs. So that way we kind of level the playing field a little bit. And then the other piece that, again, is pretty ambitious is actually providing a financial incentive for students to finish their life within three years. So they, you know, complete the program summer 2020. If they get licensed by summer 23, then they'll receive some sort of financial bonus, if you will, to get uh, to get licensed. And so, you know, we really, really want to push the needle on getting people licensed so that they can go from the access portion to the second letter in All In For Noble, which is leadership. And so, 
leadership is really about ensuring that all of our members are um, are poised for different positions of leadership, whether it be, you know, becoming a firm owner or becoming, uh, you know, first an associate and then a senior associate principal, senior principal in small, medium or large type firm or going into public service like city government or development or you know, whatever they want to do that, you know, that's taking a leadership role. NOMA wants to be in a position to help facilitate that. And even though we don't have like formalized programs for those kinds of things, you know, we certainly leverage the conference as a way to help people connect to mentors and to, um, you know, just to build relationships, you know, that help to facilitate those kinds of things. And then the last L in all in Pernoma is legacy. Of the 12 founders of NOMA, 12 African-American gentlemen who got together in 1971 at the AIA convention in Detroit, of those 12 gentlemen, you know, virtually none of their firms have survived them. You know, only one of them is, is still living at this point. And um, I, I think in general, firms that are that are owned by persons of color, particularly African-Americans, um, you know, haven't necessarily done the best job with succession planning. And so we want to, you know, take a very specific stance on that and say, hey, if you have a firm, we want, you know, we want you to be successful. We want you to, to think about who's going to sort of take your place or who's going to, you know, build your firm to, to go to the next level. And so that's another area where we're, you know, we're looking at, you know, bringing in outside resources to actually help people think through succession planning. And even retirement planning is really important so that people are best positioned, you know, in their more seasoned years to be in a financial place where they can actually give back to those in the leadership portion of the profession or the, the access portion. And then another part of legacy is, uh, is recognition. And so NOMA has a, a design awards program, a professional design awards program that we actually just renamed uh, the Phil Freeland Professional Design Awards in honor of Phil Freeland, who I think most people know has, uh, you know, he, he passed away recently. And uh, I'm actually going to his uh, memorial service this, uh, this weekend in, in Durham, North Carolina. But Phil Freeland, for those who don't know, was a, a prolific, uh, brilliant architect who was a longtime NOMA member, probably most notable for many of his uh, cultural buildings, including the National Museum of African-American History and Culture and, you know, the Civil Rights Museum, Atlanta, and so many other things. He had his own firm for many years, the Freelon Group, and then he, you know, sold to Perkins and Will a number of years ago. And, um, he, I mean, he's just been a, a an amazing, you know, sort of role model in, in the profession. So it's, he was we definitely he's definitely gone too soon, and so we wanted to pay homage to him through renaming our design awards the Hill Freeline Professional Design Awards. So I'll stop there and maybe take uh, questions. Uh, but those are, that's just sort of a, a snapshot of what I've taken on since I started back in January, which seems like just yesterday. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, Phil Freeline, who actually has been on our podcast before, it, it was one of our favorite episodes of all time. So to all the listeners out there, we recommend going back and taking a listen to that episode. I'd like to talk about the work that Noma is doing for accessible design. I know that that is that has been a an area of focus. So I wouldn't necessarily call it uh, as working specifically on accessible design. I mean, I think you know we we think that design is important for everyone to have access to and, and, and be being inclusive. Um, one of the things that I'd reference in a talk or in several talks that I've given is just, you know, looking at, at ADA um, or the Americans with Disabilities Act and how it's actually about a decade. It's been around for about a decade now. And what's really interesting about that is, you know, there's been, you know, a lot of, um, there's been a lot of motion around 
you know, making sure that, that we comply with all of those laws, which makes a lot of sense because everyone should have access to, um, you know, to, to, to all buildings. And I, I often draw a parallel between ADA and, and diversity, and, and here's why. You know, well, specifically, one of the goals that NOMA has is to, to double the number of licensed African-American architects by 2030. In fact, we're working with the AIA Large-Term Roundtable on what we're calling the, the 2030 Diversity Challenge. And so currently, you know, there are around 2,300 licensed African-American architects in the U.S. right now, which is around 2%, which is what it's been for the last 50 years. And so, you know, myself and the large firm Roundtable Diversity Task Force members, you know, earlier this year, we said, you know, how do we, how do we really move the needle on that? How do we get to 3% or 4%? And so our goal is to get to 5,000 licensed African-American architects by 2030. And how that ties back to ADA is, you know, you know, essentially, if African-Americans are the group where there's the greatest disparity, then by creating access for, you know, by focusing on creating access for African-Americans, that actually opens it up for everyone. Similar to how with ADA, for example, you know, I, so I travel a lot for both NOMA and, and HOK, and I enjoy travel, but I often have a rolling suitcase attached to my arm. And I really appreciate curb cuts, you know, and the curb cuts weren't made for me and they weren't made for travel. They're made for people who are differently able than, you know, who are in wheelchairs primarily, right? But because of the accommodations that were made for people in, in wheelchairs, myself as an able-bodied person who happens to have uh, rolling luggage, I'm able to, to access places more easily. And so I, you know, I tend to draw the parallel between creating greater access for those who have the, the least amount of access actually opens it up uh, for everyone. So that's, I think, what, you know, what, what I tend to reference um, as it relates to inclusive, inclusivity. Um, but of course, you know, inclusive design, sustainable design are, are things that, that are important. But I, I think my, um, my focus has been on, you know, creating opportunities specifically for, you know, for the, for the group that has had the most difficult time getting into the profession, but through that, actually creating more opportunities for all, which ties back into the All in Pernoma. Can we talk a little bit about the the conference this year? I mean, you've mentioned that it's uh, it's coming up in a few weeks. Can you talk a little bit about the themes and what uh, attendees can expect? Absolutely. So the conference is coming up uh, October 16th through the 20th. So October 16th is a Wednesday. And um, about, uh, yeah, it was 11 years ago, 2008, I actually started the annual NOMA Community Service Project. And the idea really came from the fact that we were losing a lot of students right after graduation. You know, they weren't necessarily renewing their membership because, you know, one way or another, they participated in the student design competition and then it kind of like, you know, got busy with work and, and, and disengaged. And so I wanted a way, and again, I was on the board at this time, and I wanted a way to kind of have younger people get reengaged in, in NOMA and, and at the conference. So we created the Community Service Project, which basically created a community-oriented project in whichever city we're having the conference in. So back in 2008, we had the conference in D.C. And our first uh, sort of client, if you will, was uh, Jan's Tutoring House, which was a sort of a program that helped kids with, um, you know, their after-school uh, programming. Like, I think you could volunteer to read with them, and but they had facilities that, you know, they could use a little TLC. So we put together a budget and, you know, brought together over 40 people 
in D.C. the day before the conference officially started, which is Wednesday, you know, to kind of spruce up the place. And it was a lot of fun. So we kept doing it. And so now we're in our 11th year of the community service project. So this year, we're going to be at the Weeksville Heritage Center in Brooklyn. And we're mentoring students from, you know, that are middle school students in, in Brooklyn. And so it's almost like a, a project pipeline camp. And then, you know, exploring other other themes at the, at the service project this, this year, uh, which again is Wednesday, October 16th. And then the official conference starts Thursday, October 17th, and runs through Sunday, October 20th, which, you know, the the, the Sunday activities are, are less formal. It's uh, We have a 5K run slash walk that morning, and then there's a brunch afterwards, and it wraps up with a Broadway show. But the, the real core of the programming where, you know, if you're an architect, then you can get your CEUs, and if you're a student, you can participate in the conference and talk to graduate schools about, you know, the different programs that are being offered. And so that's Thursday, Friday, and, and Saturday. And so we have, you know, over 70 exhibitors, again, many graduate schools. We also have engineers and architecture firms and, you know, other suppliers that are a part of the exhibitor fair. So we're really excited about that. You know, again, the, the student competition is a huge draw. Last year, we had 40 schools. This year, we're expecting 50. And then we have post-chapter party on Thursday. But actually, the, uh, we're working with the AIA New York chapter to throw uh, a really cool party on Wednesday night. So after the service project, there's um, we have Zena Howard giving one of our keynote lectures, which is in partnership with AIA in New York, which will be followed by a reception at the Center for Architecture, which is exciting. And then Thursday, we get into more of the core conference activities. And on Saturday, we have Alice Williams giving our, our final keynote of the conference. And then we go into our, our major awards banquet, which is on Saturday night. So it's, it's one of the most dynamic conferences um, you'll ever go to. It's like I mean, it's so much fun, but also, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of mentorship that happens in both directions. It's just a great time. So I, I encourage everyone to uh, to consider going. And if it's too late to, to book accommodations or to get to Brooklyn this year, we would certainly love to see everyone in Oakland, California next year. Conference dates for that will be October 14th through the 17th, 2020. And I chose Brooklyn and Oakland not because they're so expensive and I like to spend money, but because, um, <laughs> and I mean, these are very expensive places to have a conference. But, um, you know, luckily we've had really great support from, you know, a really wide variety of sponsors. And sponsorship is important to us because uh, we actually subsidize our students and our intern uh, attendees to, to come because the, the cost far exceed the, you know, for example, the $250 that students pay to attend the conference. The sponsors really help us achieve that. But the, reason for selecting Brooklyn this year and Oakland for next year is uh, part of my larger theme, at least for the conference, is uh, planning to stay. Sort of looking at the, you know, those cities that are very quickly transitioning, you know, they are, are known for having fairly sizable populations of people of color, but because of economic forces, you know, those uh, dynamics are starting to change a little bit. And so, you know, I kind of wanted to confront some of those issues, you know, with greater investment comes great opportunity for design and cool buildings and all that stuff. But then there's also, you know, there's certain cultural implications and economic impacts that, um, you know, that, that can start to gentrify certain neighborhoods. So I wanted us to, you know, be in environments where we can talk about that openly and honestly as well. So, I know, I know Noma is inclusive, but I think one of the things that's held me back is, is feeling like here's a space for a very small, somewhat smaller group of people who want to find a connection with one another where there isn't a lot of connection. And we're, and Donna and I are often pleasantly surprised when we go to the AIA conference and we find the representation of black architects, Caribbean 
architects to be much broader than what we experience in our daily lives. So we go back to our homes and we go back and we're largely seeing mostly uh, white professionals. And and that's one of the reasons why I've decided, you know, one of the reasons why I've decided to leave the AIA has been they're somewhat paying lip service to diversity and inclusion where it's patently obvious that NOMA is, that's, that's their, you know, that's, that's the rep, that's the reason why you ex- exist. And I'm wondering, does that connection, d- does your proximity to the AIA, is it a hindrance or is it a benefit? I mean, one of the things that actually I was thinking about today, I'm like, why wow, I left the AIA, I have no professional organization to represent me. And I'm much more inclined join to Noma. find myself. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. I find myself yeah. more inclined to to join an organization that is actually representing my the values that I believe in. Sure. And that is actually living their values. And whereas we have an organization that pays a lot of lip service to the to the values. And here's what they can't point to. They they can point to yes, William Bates is is a is a black man rep, uh, as a president of the AIA. But the AIA still doesn't hasn't had a black woman uh, as president. You're the only black woman to uh, represent the design profession that I'm aware of in a professional capacity, and your success is 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 demonstrably uh, different than many people's uh, success in the profession. And you're not just a leader, but you're some you're you're some, I don't want to put a whole lot of pressure on you, Madam President. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> but you are. I mean, to me, I mean, I. I see you and I, I, I your lecture and, and everything you've said and and um you know from you to Tiffany Brown to Catherine Darnstadt to Mitch McEwen to Zena Howard I mean you know that I can name five black women that I'm that I'm aware of it, it seems rather on the one hand very good that I can even name five but at the, at the same time I'm kind of you know again I'm kind of sad that there's only like you said you're two ninety five. That there's there is this paucity of of uh, representation in um, when we have thirteen percent of the population. So, is there anything preventing you from connecting with, say, the architectural lobby or other professional organizations? Do you look for other alliances, or are you just are or is there something that's preventing you from like, connecting to other organizations? Well, I mean, I I believe very firmly in collaboration because the profession needs to look inward and and work more closely together, but at the same time, look outward and see what other outside resources can help us to, you know, to kind of fill our our coffers with the resources to help us solve some of the problems that we have. So for example, NOMA has an, an MOU or memorandum of understanding with, with AIA. And we have, have had one for a number of years and, and AIA has been supportive of the work that we've been doing. And, you know, I've been an AIA member almost as long as I've been a, a NOMA member. And, you know, I, I think that you know, while they have some work to do on, in the diversity space, you know, they are making strides. And so they, I think they're relying uh, to some extent on us to help advance this work. And, 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 you know, we're doing the best that we can to do that. But we also have to work closely with the other architectural collaterals, which includes AIAS or the AIA students, um, which is a separate organization. And in fact, just, um, just really quickly on that topic, you know, there have been conversations about NOMA becoming a part of AIA or, you know, some people also asking why is AIAS a separate organization? Why is it, you know, um, get enveloped back into AIA? And, you know, the simple answer to that is I think NOMA and AIAS are important organizations to be independent just because if there's, uh, you know, ever a leadership change within AIA and they decide to deprioritize, you know, the voice of students or deprioritize diversity, then, you know, you know, that work would take a, a, a backseat. And so, 
So that's part of the reason why, you know, those two organizations have, have remained independent for all of these years. But also we work pretty closely with NCARB, um, you know, as, as sort of the regulators for the, for the profession, as well as NAB and ACSA. And so those being the, um, the five major collaterals, you know, I think it's important to really have, you know, strong relationships with them because, you know, that, I mean, that is our larger community. And so while we invite everyone to participate in, in NOMA, you know, we, we want NOMA members to, you know, to be engaged with the ACSA because they're, and for those who don't know, that's the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture. And there aren't many Black faculty members. So we want to, you know, figure out ways to, to collaborate and, and find ways to facilitate more pathways into academia, which is so important for the reasons that I described earlier. And then NAB, you know, the accredit, um, accreditation board, like, you know, getting more minorities at those NAB accreditation visits to schools to actually make sure that schools are, are focusing on diversity and and many other things are important to shaping the, you know, the, the future of architecture education. And NCARB also, you know, has a very important role in the licensure process. And so we have to kind of break down these barriers and these silos so that we can actually collectively solve a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the profession and, and break down a lot of the barriers that people are having to navigate to, to get to become licensed and to get to become you know, successful in the profession. And, you know, to your point about, you know, NOMA being inclusive, I, I think it's important that, you know, it, it does become a more diverse organization because, you know, we want to signal to the rest of the profession that diversity is important. And so, you know, I welcome people who are not African-American to, to join us and to be a part of that. And, you know, what's really interesting about that is, you know, for the most part, the spaces that I occupy whether it be at, at HOK or at, you know, AIA committees that I serve on or different boards, you know, I'm often the only African-American in the room. And, you know, that's, that while that's not ideal, I think what's interesting about NOMA is that when there's a Caucasian person who, who comes to the conference, they might be in a seminar and they're the only Caucasian person in the room. Like, well, now you know how it feels. So it's like, it's like a good kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like a yeah. good cultural exploration because, I mean, it, it helps you understand, like, what it feels like to be right. sort of other, if you will. But, you know, my, my dream for NOMA and, and really the profession is that there aren't rooms where people feel like they're alone. And even if they happen to be, you know, one of the only type of, you know, flavor of person that they are, that, you know, everyone feels comfortable, you know, talking about the commonalities that we have. Because as humans, we have more in common than we, to, you know, than, than not. And I think that we get so stuck on the outer envelope that we don't necessarily connect as well as we should. And so one of the things I've been talking about lately is cultural competence and, and helping people figure out, you know, how to navigate different, you know, just, just people from different cultures, how to navigate those relationships so that you can actually find common ground and, and work together in, in more productive ways. So that's, that's kind of where I like to take these conversations, not, you know, not just about, you know, it's, it's you know, I think it's important to, you know, not only have diversity, but also to have meaningful interactions with different people so that you can have better outcomes for your for your projects and, and initiatives. That's the one thing I think that happens with a lot of people um, is that they think they look at allyship and they only look at it in a very um, they don't look at it in the perspective of the professional organizations. I mean, there's a way to be an ally. And part of that is stepping up and asking holding uh, professional uh, organizations or licensure bodies or, or, or um, whatever accreditation bodies, what are you doing to address these issues? And I think there's a, there's a default that happens with most white people that, well, if, if uh, that's what 
African Americans and and uh, other people of color want that they need to step up and demand it. Well, no, that's actually if you know if we want a society where we don't have this constant rerun of the same issues, we all have to step up. We all have to step up. Absolutely. And ask the more of from our the people that are supposed to represent us as a profession. You know, I wanted to the one thing that I wanted to hit on because we we hadn't really talked a lot about it. But your connection with development and architecture and your public, your past work in, in the public-private realm with uh, the city of Detroit. Uh, one of the questions I thought was, uh, was interesting uh, from, the, from the lecture was this idea that how do we, and I think it was, I think I understand what she was, what this, what this woman was driving at, which, um, and I kind of had an answer in my head. Um, how to address it, but I wanted to hear if you if you had any time to think about it. It's been some time. The question was relative to um, culture and history of housing stock, and then we have to increase density, and then we we're kind of in this really weird cycle where we have some buildings or some houses that aren't worth saving that are too difficult to save and re, uh, rehabilitate. And then how do we bring in density, and how does that all inter interplay? And you as a, in in that. I'm sure you're finding that now at HOK. I mean, HOK doesn't really do single family homes. I, I get that. So not at all. You yeah. have to, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> and being an architect myself, I mean, I'm not really into the single family thing. Um, it, it seems too difficult to manage sometimes. Um, but the, the struggle of that, and it's funny because this issue is happening here in Minneapolis right now. So we've, we're changing the zoning. Um, we're doing a, a kind of upzoning 2040. It's the one of the premier programs in the, in the country uh, because we're trying to change how we think about how a city grows and it grows how it grows um, uh, to include and be more inclusive to represent the idea that um, that our parents and our grandparents' dreams of the the manifest destiny of owning a home isn't the reality for a lot of people, and renting uh-huh. isn't just for poor people. And and the idea that oh, how do we so have you have you thought about how that how we work in that that kind of in a very collective environment to you know preserve what's good. And, and include uh, multifamily and, and multi-mixed-use um, developments in, in residential areas? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, again, diversity being used a, in a different context here, but I think having a diversity of, of housing options is really important for a, a vital city. You know, giving people with different, you know, areas of, you know, different types of you know, different areas of interest, different means, you know, they, they need to have that optionality. And I think that one important thing that's that not often talked about enough is just um, access to capital, particularly in the minority community, you know, credit scores and, you know, all kinds of factors that, that play in just straight up discrimination in some cases, you know, play into the fact that, um, you know, many minority communities do not have the level of uh, access to capital that's important to keeping up with uh, with maintenance, which is so important. I mean, if you let a, a roof, for example, roof repair go uh, unmanaged for too long, then, you know, you've got much larger problems if you, if you can't address it. And it takes money to replace a roof. You know, it takes money to, you know, maintain, you know, any building and, and single family homes are, are, you know, where I think at least in the context of, of Detroit, that's you know, the majority of the um, housing stock. And you know, I think that one of the reasons why Detroit 
has experienced so you know so much uh, deterioration over the you know 40 50 years of, of disinvestment is because you know single family homes are particularly challenging when you know there's a lot of resources that are are being drained away from the city and so then those roofs start to deteriorate and that that turns into you know just larger larger financial issues that you know unfortunately the owners of those properties can't you know they can't keep up with and so then you know it becomes very obvious that a, that a home is no longer viable. And, and then, you know, unfortunately, it, um, they often have to be demolished. Whereas, you know, a city like like New York, for example, um, you know, it still went through an economic downturn for sure. But when, when apartments went empty, you couldn't, you couldn't tell necessarily. And so that those psychological effects of, of vacancy weren't quite as strong, but also, you know, the buildings themselves kind of protected the, the individual housing units until, you know, they're able to be brought back online. And so, so I think that multifamily housing is, is really important. And I think that, you know, to, to some extent, you know, we need to preserve the single family housing that we have. I don't know that I would support building a ton of new single family housing, given that there's yeah, given that there's so much existing right now that needs a little TLC, but I think that as we look at a new construction, that sort of missing middle, you know, the four four unit plus, you know, up to like ten stories or whatever, that's uh, often talked about as something that we don't see a lot being built. And then of course the you know the high rise towers, you know, that are going up in in lots of major cities. I think that's all important to to creating the kind of sort of housing ecosystem that can sustain a lot of different people. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, one of the thoughts that I had and, and, you know, because I think right now that a lot of presidential candidates, um, so I'm not going to ask you to take a stand on this. So I'm going to bloviate a little bit and get on my platform. I've never heard a presidential candidate talk about reparations before. I mean, and it, and half a dozen, if not dozen, of these candidates are actually talking about it. And the one thing that struck me, being a white architect here in Minneapolis, and how difficult it is to find a—it's nearly impossible. And 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 I was fortunate this uh, two weeks ago to, to actually meet uh, my first. Trying to find a, a black-owned general contractor is nearly impossible. And I'm sure um, this is Minneapolis. I'm sure this is not unique to Minneapolis. I'm sure it's probably un- in many in many other cities. It's probably the norm as well. No, you're right. And it, just for small stuff. I mean, just for uh, just for residential work. And and I was I'm trying to figure out why that is. And uh, and it's so I'm just putting together pieces of this puzzle that it, and and again it's this white guy ruminating about what's what is the reality and. And I've never checked it with anybody or I never had it fact checked. But the one thing that was pretty stark and clear to me is that, well, there's not a lot of black home ownership. Mm -hmm. And if there's not a lot of black home ownership, there isn't a lot of need for a black general contractor. And I know that still today that white people still won't let black men in their homes or black people in their homes to do work on their homes. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. that shit's got to be connected. It can't be, it can't be, I can't be making this stuff up. I mean, I think all of this stuff is interconnected. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I think that access to capital is important. Yeah, access to capital is, and like you said, if you're if you're one payment away, if your car breaks down or your roof goes up, well, or you have a leak in your roof, but you need that car to get to work, and you don't need that roof to get to work. What's getting fixed? That car's getting fixed. So I mean, yeah. you know, and it was it's so I was at a I was at a a, a party for this bank client, <clears throat> and uh, I met this woman who happened. Um, an immigrant black woman. I think she was a small, small heritage and she has her own, she's a general contractor. I'm like, I can't wow, fucking believe this. It blew my mind. I'm like, I said, I, I, she's like, I do a lot of, you know, she does a lot of, gets a lot of, a lot of, a lot of her work is 
through, you know, the minority business um, pipeline through the, you know, state and through the uh, local government. But she's like, I'm getting kind of like, you know, worn out on that because there's a lot of competition in that area. And partly because, you know, what happens here, and again, it's not unique to here, is that you get white guys who partner up their, with their wives and they call themselves a women-owned business because now they're 50%, right. which is complete horseshit. I actually have a contractor right now who's doing that. And it mm-hmm. just blows my mind. But I told her at this, I told her at this, at this part, I said, I want your business card because the next project I do commercially, because she wants to do commercial. I said, the next project I do commercially, I want you to be the general contractor. I said, I will, I will, I will work, I will work with you to get it through everything. I will make sure that we, that as long as you have good subs, we will, we will get this done. Cause this, this is, it just blew my mind that this is such a problem. Mm-hmm. It's a huge issue. It's in it's in uh, construction. It's also in architecture. I mean, you know, here in Chicago, you know, here in the HOK office, like we, you know, we strive to work with NBE and WBE firms, but oftentimes, you know, we'll go out to you know someone that we've worked with in the past and had a you know great project relationship with, and they'll say, "Sorry, I'm tapped out. Like I am being asked to be on all the projects, you know, where there's a WMBE requirement." So. Yeah, so it's definitely something that we that we face uh, in architecture and, and certainly in construction. I remember that being a major issue in Detroit as well. And I think that it's not just access to capital, it's also access to opportunity. And I think that that's where workforce development programs can come into play, particularly in, in the construction space, because it, you know it's a slightly shorter timeline to become viable in construction than than architecture. Because I mean, everyone knows it takes like at least twelve, ten to twelve years to become a licensed architect. But you know, we can kind of reach into you know neighborhoods and and advertise construction opportunities, you know, of course, there's like, you know, some training that's required, but I think that's a really great opportunity to get, you know, particularly people of color and also looking at at more women to get into the trade, you know, for pretty high paying jobs, you know, once you get to a certain level and if you join a union and and all that stuff. And I think that actually helps everyone in the sense that if there's, um, you know, a greater number of people to do work, then that kind of actually helps to uh, relieve some of the, the financial pressure that we're seeing where, you know, a lot of contractors are able to charge a lot more because there's so much work and not enough people to do it. And so if we can figure out ways to create workforce development programs that, you know, that really reach into the minority community in particular, I think that's part of the solution. You know, I mean, there's so many, so many issues, but I think that's, that's one small way to, I think, help alleviate some of that. Yeah. I mean, we can't even get at, we can't get at the real issue when one of the, 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 the starkest slides I, and it's, you know, I think we've all seen it before, but the, the, the really, um, hard slide to look at is when you look at net worth, we can't increase the net worth of, of African Americans if they don't have, they don't own their, I mean, part of the net worth calculation is your home. I mean, that's kind of figured into that. Right. So, I mean, it would be so easy. There's so many homes that have have needs that you can, you know, we could we could buy these homes, give them if they if the people that live in them want them and just give. I mean, we could give them we could give people if you go to a trade school and you come out and you're ready to start, you know, your own business, we can give you a home. I mean, we can give we there is very easy ways to solve. I don't know if it's easy because nothing ever in this in this country is ever, ever easy. But if you want to get at some of the systemic issues, they have. I mean, when I when I hear reparations, I'm not hearing any real like things that make sense to me. But as an architect, I say these things make sense to me. Somebody comes, goes to decides they want to go to a trade school. You get out. We'll give you this house. You could fix it up, and you built already built value. You've got you've got your net worth, and it's it's not something that could just happen like for one or two people. It has to happen nationally. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big problem. And, and just to speak to the slides you know, that I, I talked about at the, the lecture, um, the median net worth of a, a white family in America is about 117000 And that same number for African-American families is 1700 So that, you know, it's, it's a real challenge when you think about, you know, the whole population of people who are, you know, quite frankly, generally speaking, economically disadvantaged. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult. There's a saying that it's very expensive to be poor because everything costs way more. You know, if you don't have the right health insurance and you get sick, it costs far more than, you know, if you did have health insurance, for example. And that's one small example of how, how expensive it is to live in poverty. And so, and that's not to say that all African Americans are living in poverty and those are median numbers, but it, it does point to, um, you know, some pretty stark trends that um, as a nation we have to, to deal with if we want to start to see, you know, everyone prosper in a more holistic and sustainable way. And I think that, you know, having one group that is so far behind is not, it's not positive for anyone. I think that some might see, oh, well, this group gets, you know, air quotes wealthier than another group has to become less wealthy. And I don't, I don't really see it being that, pun in, no, no pun intended, black and white. You know, I think that there are ways for everyone to, to benefit. And I think that we need, you know, people to really sit down and, and figure this out. You know, I think, you know, one small thing that, that Noma is doing, and again, kind of going back to architecture a little bit, and we can zoom back out later if you want. But one thing that Noma is looking to do is actually provide consulting services to to firms and companies and organizations. Um, I've created what's called uh, the Noma President Circle, which is basically, you know, my my two year initiative to to raise funds for us to kind of to fund some of the uh, initiatives that I mentioned earlier in this discussion, but also in exchange for the membership, which could be the highest level fifteen thousand dollars, and then the next level that's the um, champion level, the next level down is patron, and that's ten thousand. The next level is supporter at 5,000 and the most accessible one is friend member at 1,000. So we want to make sure that the different companies have you know, the ability to participate in they're not a, a big company and at, the, at the highest level, the um, champion level, which again is 15,000. And so my hope is to get a lot of different corporate sponsors or corporate members, architecture firms, engineering firms, organizations to actually sign on not just for the money, which is obviously helpful for us to, to grow and to do what we need to do, but also the consulting that we're providing is actually helping to answer the questions that I get all the time. Where are the minorities? How do we find them? How do we keep them? And I think that, you know, we need other types of organizations to do similar things to actually answer those really, really important questions from the perspective of, of experts. And so, you know, even us as NOMA, we don't necessarily have, you know, all the, the answers relative to diversity, equity, inclusion, but we can talk about things, you know, from our perspective, you know, in the field. And we, so we're basically partnering NOMA members with diversity, equity, inclusion consultants to actually go embed themselves into organizations for a certain number of hours, depending on the level that they sign on to for president circle and actually do a needs assessment to say, well, you know, where is your organization in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion? You know, what are your goals and how can we help you get there? And so, you know, I'm really proud that, that NCARB is, is one of the, the first organizations that that signed up, you know, to be a, a champion level member because, you know, they're really, really interested in figuring out how to diversify these, you know, the different member uh, member boards that they that they represent throughout the country. And then also AIA is a, is a champion level member. And then we have large firms like, of course, HOK and, and Perkins and Will, who've also signed on, Cunningham Group, Shepley Bullfinch. And so, so we're really excited about, you know, these these initiatives to actually start to talk about in a real way, how firms and how organizations uh, and other types of companies can break down some of the problems that they're they're having. Like, you know, I think again, going back to that fostering a sense of belonging that's so important. 
how can we help firms to, to do that so that when they do get minority talent, you know, those folks feel welcome and they feel included. They feel like they can grow their careers there. And I think that, you know, what is organization like NOMA that's focused in construction, you know, did the same kind of thing. And then what if an organization like NOMA, you know, was, was working on, on that same thing in financial services or, you know, I mean, I, I think there's just, there's so much that can be done. Uh, and I think that we have to really think outside the box in terms of how to provide awareness about how to solve the problem. Because I think the people generally who have the power to solve the problem don't, one, don't know that it's a problem, or two, they're not really sure how to solve it. And so we need to, again, have diversity of thought to help you know, really figure this stuff out. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, I was a, I was a volunteer test taker for NCARP. I mean, even at that level, I mean, they, you know, incredibly white and lacking, I think in some diversity, um, they could easily invite volunteer, especially when they go on these wonderful junkets, they should be inviting a diversity of, uh, perspective as well in that area. Two last questions for you, Madam president, if you don't mind. Absolutely. I'm going to put you on the, <laughs> I'm gonna gonna really hit you with the hard ones here. Uh oh. What are you What are you reading and what are you listening to these days? <laughs> oh gosh. So right now, I've so I've been really busy getting ready for this conference. But um, there's a there's a book that I've really enjoyed starting and stopping to read called Thank You for Being Late or Thanks for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. And what I think is really interesting about that book. One, I'm sometimes late for meetings because I overcommit, but what he made me feel better about is that sometimes when someone is late for a meeting, it gives the other person a chance to like actually take a deep breath and like center themselves and, and, and kind of regroup. And so actually when I'm actually on time for a meeting or early, I kind of like that in between time, you know, when I'm waiting for someone to show up so they can actually like really breathe. But I mean, that's not what the whole book is about, that's sort of the title. But, you know, he talks about, you know, how innovation, particularly in the year 2007, when, you know, when the iPhone came out and, you know, so many major things like Twitter and, and, and other sort of technological advancements happened, you know, it really shaped the world in a, in a pretty major way. And, and you know, technology is only obviously continuing to become, you know, a larger, have a larger impact in our lives. And so, you know, the book is largely about, you know, how do we, how do we thrive in, in sort of this age of, of rapid acceleration? So I'm, Looking forward to continuing that book, even though I'm, I'm uh, in the middle of it now. And actually, Thomas Friedman happened to speak at the um, at the the NCARB annual meeting that I went to in DC a few months ago. So, so that's a that's a good one. And lately, I haven't honestly, I haven't been listening to a ton of ton of music. Um, I'm a pretty big Beyonce fan, so I, I like her stuff. But I've recently just been like trying to do like meditation because I like I'm a little bit overbooked, and so I've yeah. been. I've been listening to this. There's an app called Abide, which is like biblically based meditation, which is helpful because it just kind of helps me to regroup in the morning. I, I like to walk to work in the morning and kind of listen to listen to that so that I'm not like on the phone talking about Noma stuff or HOK stuff and just kind of like centering myself. So sometimes not hearing a lot of action is is uh, what I need. That's great. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. Yeah, I know. It's been fun. I've enjoyed the conversation. You know, I, I we had uh, we had Seku on and then he was out here for the uh, hip hop architecture uh, exhibition. He decided he was going to um, because uh, James Garrett is centered here in, in St. Paul, the Twin Cities. 
So they were trying to figure out where to, after it was in New York City, trying to figure out where, where to uh, bring it next and uh, what to do with it. And they decided to bring it out here. So he did, they did like a, like a almost, I think I want to say a three or four day symposium basically. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I had for him was, um, was asking him, you know, does hip hop architecture get at all these other things? Like, can it, can it affect code? Can it affect, you know, this and that? And one of the things he said, which I, you know, thinking that, um, everything that has, has to be centered around like changing a system. He said, sometimes he was quoting a rapper and I wasn't quite sure who it was. Uh, I don't recall offhand. He said, sometimes, uh, I don't want to be a soldier. Sometimes I just want to be a man. And, you know, sometimes I, I don't want to fight every single day, fight everything. It's just, you know, sometimes things can be just about oh, this design and it can yeah. be just, you know, about this and not have to be about the uh, fight every single day. And I thought that was, uh, thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, I, like I decided to be an architect like 25 years ago because I wanted to help repair, rebuild Detroit. And I, you know, even though I'm, tr- I'm currently doing work that's now, you know, in Detroit and Chicago and throughout the Midwest and to some extent throughout the country. Are you going to come here to Minneapolis? We need your voice here in, uh, in, in, in Twin Cities. Is it sure. going to come? Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd love to. Let's do some stuff. That'd be great. Okay. But what what I was going to say, but also happy to, to stop off in Minneapolis. Uh, what I was going to say is that, you know, I started this journey 25 years ago to work on improving the quality of life for people living in cities. I guess starting in Detroit, and I expanded once I learned about other places. But I yeah, had to take a little bit of a detour to figure out how to actually fix the profession so that, you know, that cities can thrive, you know, with the, uh, you know, with the benefit of diverse professionals that are helping to shape the future. So I look forward to the point where like we solve kind of a diversity issue and we can kind of get back to the buildings and the public spaces and making great cities even greater. So Kimberly, um, I hear that next year the conference is going to be in Oakland. Is that still going to be during your tenure as president? It is, yeah. So I'm president for two years, which equates to 721 days. This next year is a leap year, so we've got a February 29th. So I'm I'm looking forward to serving all the way until December 31st, 2020. Great. Well, keep us updated with uh, you know all of the exciting news coming out of Noma. And uh, we'd love to do something with you guys for next year's conference as it's uh, it's it's much closer to us here in L.A. than this year's conference is. So um, it would be uh, really great to get involved somehow. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the continuing the conversation. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at Arconnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.